Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 311th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is Bonnie Cassidy. Bonnie is the past president of the American Health Information Management Association, better known to all of us as AHIMA. Bonnie is also the recipient of the 2014 Distinguished Member Triumph Award from AHIMA, and I was there to see Bonnie accept that award. It was really quite an experience. And Bonnie's also going to be co-hosting next Tuesday as well as Dr. Reamer is on a well-deserved vacation. Good morning, Bonnie. Welcome to Talk to Tuesday. Good morning, Chuck. Great to be here talking about medical necessity and medical decision-making. That is our lead story. Uh, of course, uh, we broke that story last week on Rack Monitor, and the question is, are medical decision-making and medical necessity one in the same? And your response, Bonnie? Well, they're not, Chuck. <laughs> and often bad advice tends to circulate regarding how to select the correct E&M codes. Indeed it is. We've got two reports, Healthcare Attorney David Glazer, who broke the story last week on Rack Monitor. He's going to report on the legal aspects of this issue, and for a coding perspective, we'll be joined by nationally recognized coding consultant and speaker, Betsy Nicolette. And we've got Stephanie Daniels, an expert on case management, is standing by to report on care management and care coordination. And our friend Stanley Nockamson is with us today to report on the latest regulations coming out of Washington. <laughs> Always impressive to have Stanley on the broadcast. He seems to have a great deal of regulations to report this morning. And we also have some healthcare news to report, and for that we check in with Dr. Larry Field, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD-10 Monitor, inviting you to download a four-part series on E&M coding. It features nationally known healthcare coding authority, Deb Greider, and it's available now on demand. Here now is Dr. Larry Field. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for having me today. I'd like to talk about something uh, that's more newsworthy rather than actual news. As you know, I, I work as a frontline physician advisor and have done uh, quite a few reviews over many years now. And it's good to know what the baseline is, particularly when you're dealing with commercial payers along with uh, Medicare Advantage. And something of interest uh, came into play last week. And that had to do with uh, one particular managed care company and the review came back that a case was valid for an inpatient stay, but the medical director wished to combine it with a previous stay. And that stuck out because normally that's not determined by the frontline medical director. So my ears already perked up. And then it happened two more times in the same week with the same company, different medical director, and in different parts of the country. So that makes you think that there's something that's a little more afoot um, in the Medicare Advantage area. And obviously this goes to payment. Both stays were valid. Both stays on these particular cases were not connected, and they usually occurred weeks apart. We know within Medicare the QIO can come in and combine those stays, but we also had this discussion earlier on last year with Dr. Hirsch, and I had agreed with him back at that time, that we had on Medicare cases, sometimes, you know, the rules said a patient was readmitted the next day, and it was for the same condition, and we felt medically they, those days should be combined. Unfortunately, the billing rules did not allow that. 
on these Medicare Advantage uh, cases, these are cases now that are weeks apart. They were not connected. The medical director thought the readmission, so to speak, was valid for inpatient. But to try and get around payment, they would try and combine it into the first indexed inpatient stay. And that is something that is definitely new and started last week. So if you're starting to see that, particularly with one managed care company, um, you need to pay attention to it. And that also helps your physician advisors, if they're in part of the revenue cycle, to be able to see that right up front so that you can keep that in mind when doing these reviews. It's always important to have a PA in the system and being able to get feedback on what's happening. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Field. That was Dr. Larry Field. Dr. Field is the treasurer of the American College of Physician Advisors. Thanks again, Dr. Field. It is Tuesday. It's February 6th. We are now six days into Black History Month, and you're listening to the 311th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to attend a webcast on hierarchical condition categories, or HCCs. As HCCs begin to permeate the vocabulary of the C-suite, it's critical for HIM professionals to understand and be fluent in the fundamentals of HCCs. That includes their impact on the financial condition of the organization and the unique characteristics of the various HCC models. Physician and provider documentation is as important in achieving entitled reimbursement under an HCC model as it is in a DRG environment, as you'll learn in this webcast on Wednesday, February 21st. Join nationally recognized HIM expert Rose Dunn for this important webcast, HCCs, Understanding Their Dimensions and Possibilities. To attend, click on the ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800 252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. By the way, the legendary Rose Dunn's going to be on Tucked In Tuesday next Tuesday when we honor some of the great past presidents of AHIM, of course, uh, including Bonnie Cassidy and Charlotte Barrett, and uh, as I mentioned, Rose Dunn. Now's the time for our regulatory segment here on Talk 10 Tuesdays called Reg Watch. It features healthcare industry expert Stanley Nockerson. Good morning, Stanley. Stanley, what's the latest coming out of Washington? Good morning, Chuck, and to all of our panel and listeners. Got some uh, big happenings with uh, the confirmation of the new Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, who previously served in several administrations, but most recently was on the in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, he will now take the helm of HHS. Uh, it'll take him a few weeks to bring in all of his, uh, his advisors and stuff and, and get things rolling. And I think we saw in the uh, State of the Union that the president uh, talked about reducing uh, prescription drug prices. It'll be interesting to see how the new Secretary Azar takes on that, as well as all the other challenges of HHS. The term uh, ICD-11 is occasionally thrown around, and the World Health Organization is in the last stages of finalizing uh, the, I'll call it the the draft, or the the latest version of ICD-11. And there are some rumors that uh, they will not allow any clinical modifications. As we know, the U.S. takes the base code set and uh, then adds uh, some additional codes, provides some clinical modification uh, to allow the code set to work better for uh, payment and recording processes. 
However, um, it will be interesting to see if that allow, if who will allow that clinical modification, and if if not, that sort of speeds up the process for actually adopting ICD-11 if the industry chooses to to do so. Um, in that there will not be the one to two year or more process of clinical modification. So let's keep our eyes out on that to, to see how quickly uh, or if the United States adopts ICD-11 as our code set. But I think the, some of the big news uh, coming out from CMS is the uh, publication of the 2019 Medicare Advantage and Partially Advanced Notice and their draft call letter. They are proposing some changes to the Medicare Advantage and Part D program that uh, really have a lot to do with, with coding, and it will give uh, the Medicare Advantage plan some information once it's finalized as to how best to prepare their bids for providing Medicare Advantage services uh, to Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, the Medicare Advantage program is surely a, a very popular part of Medicare. What CMS is proposing is uh, updating the methodology to pay uh, for to pay Medicare Advantage plans, and it looks like, at least from what they're proposing, expect about uh, a 3.1% increase in revenue for uh, Medicare Advantage plans based on some changes in the way they compute the risk adjustment and also in an adjustment for the underlying coding trend. Uh, so it looks like uh, Medicare Advantage plans are uh, continuing to sort of upgrade their coding. Uh, they are also changing the risk adjustment model and proposing to use more and more encounter data, actual encounter data from uh, managed care plans, rather than just the summary diagnosis data that, that they're using. So that means that, again, accurate uh, coding and complete coding is even more important. Uh, one of the interesting things that they're doing is allowing for uh, – the use of health-related supplemental benefits from managed care plans. Uh, although Medicare only has allowed benefits that are directly medically related or medically necessary, um, they are going. They're proposing that, that Medicare Advantage plans uh, be eligible to uh, to offer supplemental benefits if the primary purpose includes daily maintenance. Uh, so things like um, uh, increasing the, a number of these kinds of allowable benefits to avoid or reduce emergency room utilization and other types of uh, severe consequences uh, is something that CMS is proposing, and it will be interesting to see how well the industry um, accepts that, agrees with that, or doesn't agree with that. So some big changes for Medicare Advantage proposed for 2019, um, and again, coding remains a key factor in, in getting appropriate reimbursement. Chuck, back to you. It was Stanley Nockerson. Stanley is the founder of Nockerson Advisors, LLC. Thanks, Stanley. Great reporting. We're pleased to welcome back to Tucked In Tuesday, nationally recognized care management expert, Stephanie Daniels. Good morning, Stephanie. Welcome to the broadcast. Good morning, Chuck. It's generally accepted that hospital case management has evolved over the years since its introduction in the mid-1980s. We've gone from the original clinical model to the functional model, then jumped to the era of outcomes achievement. With the rapid movement to a value-based environment, it should come as no surprise that once again, hospital case management programs are changing too. But it hasn't been easy. 
Unfortunately, many hospitals are still mired down with the discharge planning, utilization review tasks of second-generation models. Regular readers of my articles, blog posts, and books know that second-generation models, also known as functional models, came about after the management engineers of the 1990s combined social work departments and utilization review departments created so-called case management departments charged with discharge planning and utilization review activities. In many hospitals today, patient nurses are no longer held responsible for initiating their patient's discharge plan. Instead, a small cadre of case management FTEs are the discharge planners for an entire hospital population. They are the travel agents to arrange the discharge, and they are the utilization reviewers, a burdensome array of responsibilities, none of which are done optimally. As a result, discharge preparations are often just in time, readmissions escalate, medical necessity requirements are perfunctorily applied, and denials increase. As fourth-generation models of care coordination are popping up, there is universal recognition that there is a unique population of acute care patients who need special attention, not only to help them navigate through the acute episode of care, but often across the entire continuum. As ACOs proliferate along with new payment and delivery of care models, many hospital execs and case management program leaders have been successfully preparing for a new marketplace. Predictive analytics or their surrogates are being used to identify high-risk, high-utilization patients who would benefit most from care coordination. Networks of preferred post-acute providers are being formed. Practice profiles are being distributed to the medical staff. Centralized post-acute resource centers are being created. And selected patients are being monitored closely and, to the extent feasible, given the size of the organization, seamlessly across multiple settings. But as I visit hospitals across the country, I've discovered that in the rush to address new care coordination opportunities, some of the early silo initiatives are having unintended consequences. In a New York Times article by Paula Spann entitled The Tangle of Coordinated Healthcare, she highlights how hospitals, ACOs, managed Medicaid programs, home care agencies, senior centers, and other community organizations have all established their own care coordination programs. So now we have multiple care coordinators from different care providers or payers who are contacting patients and recommending activities that may have already been arranged by another coordinator. Unfortunately, most coordinators are not even aware that others have made contact or visited until they ask the patient. What patients need, rather, is access to a primary navigator who can work across diverse care centers settings to help patients manage their care plans. Care coordination without care plan continuity is detrimental to patient care and may compromise desired outcomes. When considering how care coordination will work at your facility, ensure that it starts with an enterprise-wide vision that can provide seamless continuity of access and information across multiple settings. What patients need is access to a coordinator who is fully empowered with the right tools enabling him or her to work across diverse care settings to help patients access and manage their care. That's it for me, Bonnie. Back to you.
Thanks, Stephanie. And that was a tremendous care coordination, patient-focused discussion, very thought-provoking for all of us. That was the founder and partner of Phoenix Medical Management, Stephanie Daniels. Chuck? Thanks, Bonnie, and thank you very much, Stephanie. Uh, You can read Stephanie's excellent article on the subject in today's edition of ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there's been considerable confusion that seems to equate medical decision-making with medical necessity. Well, they're not the same, as you heard us mention. Last week, healthcare attorney David Glacier was the first to break a news story involving Highmark's recent policy, evidently recently rescinded, that required physicians to use medical decision-making as a key component of coding. Here now with the first of our two reports on our lead story is nationally recognized speaker consultant Betsy Nicoletti. Welcome to the broadcast, Betsy. And as a coding expert, what was your reaction when you heard about Highmark's decision, which, of course, now has been rescinded? I said my blood pressure went up. It sent it through the roof. So, Chuck, thank you very much for inviting me to participate for the first time in Talk 10 Tuesdays. A coder wrote to one of my colleagues about this and said, the insurance company told me that even though the visit met the requirements for a 99215, they were downcoding it because of complexity. And a week before that, a physician had written to me and said, my own coding department downcoded my 99215, even though it had time documented, because it didn't meet medical decision-making. So I know you listeners who have been uh, listened in last week heard about that Highmark decision since rescinded. It was communicated to medical practices in a document called Today's Message. And it said in capital letters, Highmark to require providers to prioritize medical decision-making with complexity of history and exam when reporting E&M services. And, of course, we might wonder, why did they do that? And they said it was, quote, based on their interpretation of the 1995 and 1997 guidelines. Well, their interpretation is dead wrong. So why do payers and coders downcode visits when the history and the exam support the level of service? They base it on a quote from the Medicare Claims Processing Manual that says, medical necessity is the overarching criterion in selecting a level of service, not the volume of documentation. So let's hold on to that thought. Medical necessity is the overarching criterion. So if we're going to go back in history, the documentation guidelines were developed in 1995 and 97, a joint work product of the AMA and Medicare, and they said that for established patient visits and some other types of visits, the two of the three key components of history, exam, and medical decision-making must be met. The quote from the Medicare Claims Processing Manual doesn't talk about medical decision-making. It talks about medical necessity. But those two are not synonymous, and really, medical decision-making shouldn't be used as a stand-in for medical necessity. I do say, in an E&M service, medical necessity is like beauty. It is in the eye of the beholder. The medical necessity for ordering an EKG or a CT scan of the abdomen, that's pretty well defined. We look at the medical policy from the government or the payer, and it tells us what they think is medically necessary for us to order that CT scan. If the patient's going to have a blepharoplasty, there are clear diagnostic indications. But neither Medicare 
nor CPT or any other payer has developed guidelines that describe the medical necessity for performing a specific level of history or exam. If the clinician documents that detailed history and exam, should a payer or coder say that it wasn't necessary? Of course, I'm going to admit it, our electronic health records have resulted in some medically unbelievable notes. I've been known to ask, is it usual to do a comprehensive exam for a patient with a sprained ankle? But developing medical policies based on outliers is the wrong solution. The correct solution, follow the guidelines and then let medical directors deal with the outliers. Thank you, Bonnie. Back to you. Thank you, Betsy. That was Betsy Nicoletti. Betsy is a national consultant on physician coding and founder of Coding ITEL. Chuck? Thanks, Bonnie. And uh, thank you, Betsy, very much for an excellent report. By the way, you can read Betsy's reporting on this issue in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Healthcare attorney David Glazer was the first to break this news story involving Highmark's recent policy. Of course, it has been rescinded. At least we understand that's the case. Uh, David, for a legal perspective, tell us what we should be uh, thinking about. You bet, Chuck. So there are a veritable plethora of lessons from this episode. You know, Betsy made the point that medical necessity and medical decision-making aren't the same. Now, both have the word medical, but the similarity stops there. The E&M guidelines focus on medical decision-making, and that's really an attempt to mechanically quantify the amount of intellectual thought that a medical professional uses during an evaluation and management service. Medical necessity is a question of whether the work performed was truly required. So if you boil it down to a sentence, decision-making involves describing what was done. Necessity asks whether it needed to be done. The E&M documentation guidelines are quite explicit that for many types of services, you can choose two of the three key components we're selecting a code. Now, I should add that the E&M guidelines are, as the name explicitly states, a guideline and not a statute or a regulation. You're not explicitly required to comply with those guidelines. Now, if you doubt me at all, please listen to the upcoming RAC Monitor webcast on March 1st, where I'm going to discuss that in detail, and Emily helpfully put the handouts tab, the information you need to register. So the first lesson is that while medical necessity may control a code, medical decision-making does not. So now let's talk about Highmark. Highmark adopted a policy that's since been rescinded, requiring physicians to use medical decision-making as a key component. Can a payer issue such a policy? The answer depends on two key facts. First, do you have a contract with the payer? If you don't have a contract, the payer lacks the ability to invent a baseless rule and shove it down your throat. Absent a contract, an insurer can't require you to comply with any term that's contrary to industry norms. And this policy is explicitly in conflict with the CPT manual, which is probably the most widely accepted standard in the healthcare industry. Now, if you do have a contract, the question is whether the contract permits the insurer to adopt a new policy and what notice it must give you. Typically, insurance contracts give the plan wide latitude to make changes, though a good contract permits you to object to the change or terminate the contract upon one. If the contract lets the plan make unilateral changes, you may well be out of luck, which brings us to our second lesson. Understand insurers' contracts and policies, including whether you have the ability to terminate a contract or object to a new policy. Now, I started covering this story after I was at a, about to give a speech, and the prior speaker was a consultant who categorically insisted that medical decision-making controlled the code. Which brings us to our third lesson. 
Don't believe everything you hear from experts at a conference, on a webinar, or any place else. The fact that they're strident doesn't make them correct. If we claim something is true, make us show you the rule. And that might bring us to the final lesson. As the TSA says, when you see something, say something. Like all of us, payers make mistakes. While there are undoubtedly payers gaming the system, there are also payers that want to do the right thing. I believe that Highmark's decision to issue a policy asserting medical decision-making always controlled in an E&M service was fundamentally flawed. I think it was unfair. But it's possible that they had the right to do it and that they just didn't make a sound decision. But Highmark reversed its decision, and they deserve credit for that. And we should all learn not to suffer in silence. When you see a problematic policy, send it to Chuck. Contact the organization and speak with the medical director, an ombudsman, or legal counsel. If you've got a denial, appeal or find some other way to change the decision. Now, we don't know what caused Highmark to change its policy, but it's quite possible that one of our listeners, or possibly the broadcast itself, was a factor. So, Bonnie, I'm going to close with an invitation. Um, my firm, Ferguson and Byron and I, are hosting a Valentine's Day webinar on love letters to and from CMS. So if you don't have Valentine's Day lunch plans, it's going to offer tips for avoiding overpayments and how to minimize the risk associated with a voluntary disclosure, and it's free. So if anyone's interested in that, they can shoot me an email. Just a final reminder, on March 1st, please uh, sign up for that webinar on why documentation deficiencies don't automatically create an overpayment, and you can see that in the Handouts tab. Back to you, Bonnie. Thanks, David, and that's a great invitation for lunch on Valentine's Day. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in Minneapolis. Chuck? Thanks, Bonnie. And David Glazer, thank you very much for, one, breaking the story uh, for us a couple of weeks ago and for your insightful uh, discussion of the issue. Uh, thanks again, David. Appreciate it very much. Now it's time for our Talk 10 Tuesday Q&A, and let's take a look at some of the questions. Michael, you uh, wanted to know, what is the article that Stephanie mentions? You're going to be able to see uh, her uh, article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. I had a question for Stanley. In your segment, you mentioned about there won't be clinical modifications to the ICD-11. Could you explain that a little more for us? They're still trying to ponder that, but as we did with ICD-10, each country takes the base code set developed by the World Health Organization, and modifies it somewhat to meet their own particular needs. The United States tended to modify the code set quite a bit more than any other country because we are one of the few countries that uses ICD coding in our payment system and, and for other uses. Most countries only use it for statistical purposes. So we needed a, a much broader code set. It'll be interesting to see um, if the World Health Organization allows for that clinical modification and the new ICD-11 code set will be sufficiently detailed enough for the United States to use it for payment purposes. If it's not, we may be sticking with ICD-10 for a long time. Okay, Stanley, thanks very much. Bonnie, give us an idea of what's coming up on next Tuesday's broadcast you're going to be co-hosting. We're going to hear from two of my AHIMA colleagues, both past presidents, Rose Dunn and Charlotte Barrett. Also, our special guest will be Terry Fletcher, a cardiovascular coding authority, when we observe Friday is Heart Month. 
February is Heart Month. It's also Valentine's Day, of course. Uh, Bonnie, thanks very much uh, for co-hosting. That's going to be a wrap for this edition, the 311th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Bonnie and I want to thank our guest today, Stephanie Daniels. Thank you, Stephanie. Dr. Larry Field, nice to have you on the uh, Talk 10 Tuesday news desk, Dr. Field. Thanks again. David Glazer, Betsy Nicoletti, and Stanley Nakasim, Dr. Prothora. Thanks again. And we hope you'll be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Bonnie Cassidy and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday and I see the 10 monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.